I have become good friends with Michelle Winter. The first time I met her, she freaked me out. I was like, who is this crazy lady? And I'm pretty sure she thought I was weird. And then we've come to love each other. And she says stuff like, um, homesick for a place you've never been. And I go, oh, man, I wish I could be that deep. Um, uh, she's a gift to us. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in the Psalms. And our subtitle for this entire series is the language of faith. Psalms, the language of faith. And we've subtitled it this because we as a church want to continue to talk to God and interact with the Lord in ways that grow our faith and build our trust in Him and increase our reliance on our Heavenly Father. And the Psalms are really just one giant collection of poetic conversations with the Lord. They teach us about how to talk to God in a way that increases our connection with Him and grows our faith and grows our trust in our Heavenly Father. And our subject this morning is, I believe, one of the most frequently used emotions by God to help us to grow, to catalyze us towards becoming more people and a people of faith. This morning, we are talking about fear. This morning, we're talking about what it looks like to be afraid. And you know, I was thinking about just this last weekend, just the last few days of my life, and I was just reflecting on what a common experience fear is. We don't think about fear all that often, um, but it's a very common thing to, uh, to think about fear and to experience fear. And this just in the last couple of days, I've been you know, tempted to be traumatized by faith in a few different moments. Friday night, it, uh, it kicked off. We had a thing up here in the back parking lot we called Kid Fest. And because Pastor Paul is such a kind and gracious and generous pastor and friend to me, he put me in the dunk tank. And overall, it was quite fun. It was a hot day. The water was refreshing. But I have to tell you, when you're sitting up there on that little seat, hovering over the abyss of water, there it's a vulnerable place. There is this, this feeling of vulnerability, and every single time, one of the people from our church, with this vindictive, you've preached a long sermon one too many times, Pastor Dave, look in their eye, would rear back with the ball and let it fly, there is this moment where like, you would tense up and kind of anticipate, is it going to hit the target? Am I plummeting into the water? Oh no, or oh yes, and then there I would go, and there was just this moment of fear every single, you think you'd get used to it, and yet every time, and there's the look. There's the fearful look. And there I go in. I think my son put me in. And he really enjoyed that. And that's the full commitment level of the pastor to go all the way in, even though he's six foot five and the tank is only like three foot two. So um, it was just this experience over and over and over again of just a little moment of fear. And then that night after getting home late and um, you know drying off, a little more seriously, I watched the end of a... Netflix series that some of you may have heard of or even seen called 13 Reasons Why. And I have a whole lot of thoughts and emotions about this show and perhaps we'll explore, perhaps we'll explore some of those in a, in a future sermon. But one feeling I had as that show ended was the feeling of fear. Fear for my kids, fear especially for my daughters and what they might experience 
in our schools and in our world. Then yesterday morning, I, I put my family on an airplane. Every summer, my kids go back to spend a couple weeks with my folks in Nebraska. They love going to Nebraska. Most people dream of vacations to Hawaii. My kids dream of vacations to Nebraska. My wife flew them back, and she goes to see her grandmother in Iowa for a few days, and then comes home before the kids, which is a glorious thing. At any rate, um, as, I, as I dropped them off at the airport and drove away, I had this realization that the four people I love more than anyone else in the world were going to be on an airplane. And, and I started to think, and you know what I started to think, and that is, what if something happened? You know, and there's just this growing temptation to, to worry and to have anxiety and to be afraid and to wait for that call that would come later that says we made it. And they did. Um, and then yesterday, because I was bacheloring it while they were traveling, and it was like 105 degrees here, I decided it was time to get the sprinklers going. And I have to tell you that every year, when the day arrives where I launch the sprinkler system back up again, it's a day of fear for me. And some of you will laugh, but this is true. There is this fear, and here's, here's where it comes from. I am not handy. I don't fix things. I can't fix things. And so every year when I go to fire up the sprinkler system, I have this fear. Something is going to go wrong. The lines will have cracked over the winter. Things are going to be a disaster. And I'm either going to have to spend a lot of hours frustrated or a lot of money, a big bummer, to get the sprinkler system working again. And so there's this moment of fear and anticipation to see if they will work. And yes, they worked. It's a huge victory. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Um, and then I was thinking about Royal Family Kids Camp this week. I'm heading off the camp. I'm not wearing a blue shirt, which I took a lot of heat from, from the, from the team. But um, going off the camp, and there's fear about that. Will the kids that I'm assigned like me? Will we connect? Will I get enough rest? Will the bunk beds uh, fit my six-foot-five frame? And will my back, you know, sustain the weekend and such? And then I was finishing up my sermon last night, and for me that's always a process that's full of weeping and gnashing of teeth and fear and anticipation. Um, by the way, do you know that the number one recorded fear for people in the world is public speaking? That's number one. That's the scariest thing anyone can do. And some of us have the blessing of getting to do it all the time. Um, number two is death. So public speaking, death. And so there's fear, thinking about the message. Friends, fear is just part of the human condition. It's this, this constant emotion that every single one of us who lives in this fallen world has to face. You know, will I succeed or will I fail? Will I be safe or will danger win? Will my loved ones be safe or not? Will I have a life of security or Will there be turmoil? Will pain and suffering rear its ugly head in my life in a way that I just cannot handle? These are the questions that run through our minds and through our subconscious. And today, our psalm is Psalm 46. And here's what's cool about Psalm 46. What most Bible scholars believe is that this psalm was written by a guy named Hezekiah. 
he wrote this psalm, and they believe that he wrote it during one of the darkest times for the nation of Israel. Hezekiah became the king of the nation of Israel, and he became the king at the ripe old age of 25. 25 years old, and he inherits a nation, a nation that needs a lot of work. He, he, got, he bought himself a fixer-upper for sure. You see, this nation that Hezekiah is now ruling has been following after other gods. But Hezekiah wants to change that. He wants to bring reformation. He wants to lead the people back into the worship of the Lord. And so what Hezekiah does is he goes around tearing down all the idols, ridding the nation of all their false gods and false places of worship. And things for the people of God start to turn around. The nation starts to reorient and go in the right direction. But then tragedy strikes. Then 14 years into Hezekiah's reign... The Assyrians, a very powerful empire located in what is now modern-day Iraq, came down on the warpath led by a guy named Sennacherib. And they take control of the northern part of Israel, and they destroy the city of Lachish. And then they come down and they besiege the capital city of Jerusalem where Hezekiah is. You can see it there on the map as the Assyrian Empire begins to move and expand and grow by force. Now, the world of history and archaeology actually has a lot to say about this empire, and in particular, this leader, Sennacherib. This guy is not just a Bible character. He's a, he's a character from history. We read about him in other places as well. He ruled Assyria from 704 to 681 BC. Here's a picture of him. He's kind of just a, a, a gnarly, ugly, mean-looking guy because he was gnarly and ugly and mean. And he moved the capital city of Assyria to Nineveh. You remember the city of Nineveh, the place where Jonah was called? This very pagan place. And he wanted uh, for himself the most ornate palace in history. He was the kind of person that said, like, I don't want to just, you know, have a palace. I want the best palace. Not the best palace for our nation, but the best palace in all of history. And he named his palace, the palace that he built, the Palace Without Rival. It had 70 rooms in it, and every room was the uh, engraving of a different battle, a different battle that he and his people had fought and won. One of the battles that the archaeologists have, under, have unearthed, they've unearthed portions of this palace. They unearthed the room where the picture of the battle where he destroyed the city of Lachish was, like, was pictured. And they've, they've, archaeologists have actually found that. And the point is this. This is a man who was all about power. This is a man who will stop at nothing to increase his control of the world. This guy was known for crushing any and, any, any and everyone who stood in his way. And 2 Kings tells us that he comes down to Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. They've already destroyed Lachish and now they have besieged Jerusalem. Now what does it mean to besiege a city? Do you know this? Yeah, to besiege a city is a way of taking it over, except for it was a certain strategy. Instead of just coming in and attacking a city outright, if you came to a city and they had a strong like fortress, they were well fortified, which Jerusalem was. It was built up on a hill and had a very high and stable outer city wall. And so what an army would do with a city like this is instead of attacking it, they would surround it and they would cut off all supplies. That's right. 
No food in, no food out. No water in, no water out. And then they would just wait. They would wait for the people to grow weary and weak. They would wait for the food and water supply to dwindle. They would wait until the people would get scared and panicked and discouraged. And before long, they would either negotiate or then they would attack while the city was in a weakened state. Well, this is the situation that Hezekiah finds himself in. His nation has been destroyed. His capital city has been besieged. He is surrounded by Sennacherib. And it's in this place of distress. It's in this place of brokenness. It's in this place of utter fear and terror that Hezekiah writes Psalm 46. Jenny, would you come and read our psalm for us this morning? God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thank you, Jenny. I want to start this morning in verse 4. It's my favorite verse of the whole thing. Not the most popular of the verses, but it's my favorite. He says this, Hezekiah says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, for hundreds of years, scholars and archaeologists have wrestled with this because they've asked, what is this river? If you know anything about Jerusalem, um, there is not a river that runs through it. There is not a river actually anywhere near it. And if there was a river running into Jerusalem, the Assyrians certainly would have, would have poisoned it or stopped it up or rerouted it in some way. And so um, people have wrestled with this idea of this river. Is this just a metaphor? Is this just poetic? Or was Hezekiah referring to something real? Well, a number of years ago, an ex- exciting discovery was made. They excavated something below the city of Jerusalem, and it's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah's Tunnel. You can read about it, actually, in 2 Kings chapter 20. Something else that, that scholars and archaeologists have, have wondered about, is this a real thing? Is this, is this actually a literal thing that the Bible speaks of, or was it just an image? And they've discovered that it was actually a real deal. Hezekiah knew what was happening 
Hezekiah, as the leader of this nation, looked out and saw the Assyrians coming. And so he began this project and he ordered his men to dig a tunnel from the heart of the city of Jerusalem, underneath the city, underneath the city wall, all the way to the Gihon Springs. It's a tunnel that's almost 2,000 feet long through solid rock. We actually have a picture, a couple pictures of Hezekiah's tunnel. And out of curiosity, anyone been to Jerusalem and walked? And a few of you have. Yeah, I'm really jealous because I have never been, but one day I'd love to go. Walked into Hezekiah's tunnel and seen this, this amazing feat. They call this an architectural uh, marvel because it was built on a point six degree gradient. It was built in such a way that when it reaches the Gihon Springs, which is this very crystal clear, fresh, flowing water source, the spring doesn't just gush into the tunnel and pour into the city and spill out, flooding everywhere. No, it's built in such a way that the waters just meander ever so slowly down through this tunnel and into the city in just the right way. So when the city of Jerusalem was besieged, when Hezekiah looks out and sees the Assyrian army, the dreaded and terrible Assyrian army all around his walls. And he knows that there is not going to be food or water for days or weeks or months. Hezekiah points to this river, this spring, his tunnel. And he says, this is a reminder to us that no matter what is happening. No matter what enemy comes before us, no matter what fears we may face, our God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He will always nourish us. You see, what's amazing about this river is that the Assyrians never knew it was there. It was unseen. It was an unseen source of a hope, source of joy, source of security, source of sustenance during a time when the people desperately needed that. It's a great picture for life, friends. It's a great picture for who our God is when the Assyrian armies of our world come and surround you and me. You see, some of you, friends, you're feeling besieged. Some of your lives have been surrounded by things that are scary and that are terrible and that are awful. Some of you are facing financial besiegement. Some of you are surrounded in your marriage or relationally with some people that you love. Some of you have been besieged by addiction or surrounded by insecurity or overwhelmed by unemployment or even just the possibility that unemployment unemployment might be coming your way. Or maybe it's your health or maybe it's the health of someone you love. And there are some really, really, really bad things that seem to be surrounding your life now. And the Bible doesn't minimize those. The Bible never says those things aren't real and they don't matter or they're insignificant. But what the Bible does say is this. There is a spring. There is a river. There is a source of hope and joy and peace and sustenance that God will offer you right in the middle of your enemies. And maybe today you don't see it. But it's there. And God promises it. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You may not see God, but he will never give up on you. God is with you, and he wants to comfort you and nourish you and sustain you through whatever it is you're facing. 
And one of the things we see in Hezekiah throughout this psalm is that there just seems to be this underlying confidence that no matter what he's facing, even though the situation looks so dire and so terrible and so awful and completely hopeless, he continues to hold on to hope. Hope in the presence and the faithfulness and the help of his God. In fact, he starts the psalm with these words. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help. See, Hezekiah just knows that he knows that he knows that God is with them, even when the circumstances don't seem to say that. So the question for us this morning is, how do we tap into that hope? How do we find that river? How do we have Hezekiah-like faith amidst the very real, scary, tragic fears that tend to surround our lives in this world? Well, this morning I want to just point you to a few things I believe we see in this psalm about facing fear. And here's the first one. I love the language that Josiah, or that Hezekiah, did I say Josiah? Um, They're both ayahs, but um, like I said, public speaking, it's a scary thing. Uh, I love the, the language that Hezekiah uses right at the beginning. He says this, Mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. Mountains fall into the heart of the sea. In the ancient world, friends, you know what? They actually believed that the mountains held up the sky. That was their belief. And so here's what Hezekiah is saying in a, in a very dramatic and poetic, poetic way. He's saying, the sky is falling. Things are really bad. Yeah, this is a chicken little moment for Hezekiah. Things are bad. He's saying there is actually a lot to be scared of. We should be terrified. Then he talks about the ocean and how it's roaring and surging and foaming. You know, when we think about the ocean, here's what we think about. We think about Cannon Beach. We think about salt water, taffy, and fish and chips and clam chowder at Moe's and long, quiet walks on the sand. It's this place to fly a kite and forget about your cares and escape from it all. It's not what the ancient people thought of when they thought of the ocean. In the ancient world, the ocean was a place of evil and darkness. It was this unknown abyss. It was a place of fear and terror where things could go terribly wrong. So Hezekiah is saying here at the beginning of this song, this psalm, we are in big trouble. Things are really, 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 really bad. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm terrified. You see, friends, what I love about this psalm is that the very first thing it teaches us about fear is that acknowledging it and identifying it and admitting to it is actually a very healthy thing. You see, fear is not a bad thing. It's actually designed to be a self-correcting response. It alerts you to the fact that something's wrong, that something's not right, that there's danger. It's meant to motivate you to take action so that the problem can be corrected. That's the purpose of fear. But what generally happens in our day, and I would say maybe even more so amongst Christians is that we tend to ignore fear. We tend to sweep it under the rug. We tend to minimize fear. We let it immobilize us because we will not acknowledge it. We will not admit it. We will not look at it and say, I'm afraid. Here's why I'm afraid and here's what I'm afraid of. And so instead of enabling us and empowering us to take action, fear paralyzes us. 
You see, I think it's a really important thing to know that moving from fear-based living to faith-based living always involves acknowledging fear instead of avoiding it. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know what, I'm not the kind of person that avoids fear. I don't have that much fear in my life, actually. I don't deal with that much fear. But when I do, I certainly don't avoid it. But maybe you do, maybe you don't. But let me give you three indicators that there is perhaps an underlying pattern of fear avoidance in your life. Three indicators. See if, you can just do some self-analysis on these. Indicator number one, procrastination. Got any procrastinators in here? Don't delay. Just go ahead. Raise your hands now. You see, here's how procrastination works. You see, there's this phone call I need to make, but it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to involve unpleasant words and some confrontation. And because I don't want to face the unpleasantness of it, I put off making it. And the longer I delay, because I know I should be taking care of it, the more unpleasant it is. And so the more I put it off. And what is behind it? What is behind procrastination every single time? The fear of something. The fear of something. You see, procrastination is the surface level symptom, but deep underneath procrastination is fear, unacknowledged fear. Indicator number two, indecision. You ever deal with indecision? People are afraid to make decision about a life choice, maybe about what kind of a job to take or where to go to school or what to eat on the menu at Red Robin because it's like 47 pages long. And so you're just paralyzed because what if I make the wrong decision? What if I choose the wrong path? What if I go to the wrong school, choose the wrong career? What will happen to my life? And so people are paralyzed by indecision. You know what's behind indecision? Fear. Fear. Judy, you're a good listener. Thank you. (laughs) Fear is, it's, you know, I'll tell you how I deal with fear. And this, this is me just being honest. And after the first service, like everybody came up to me to tell me like a bunch of compliments. Not what I'm after today. I deal with fear and indecision when it comes to writing my sermon. And here's how it plays out. Because I have this fear of giving a bad message, and some of you are thinking like, you know, fear not, Pastor Dave, it happens all the time. Like, <laughs> I know, I'm, yeah. But I have this fear, like I really want it to be good, and I want it to connect, and, and I really, and I want you guys to like me, if I'm really honest, right? There's, that's, that's real. And so what happens is, is all a mass material, I'll amass, I'll study a passage or the topic and I'll amass material, 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 but I won't start writing because I always think, well, maybe there's a better illustration out there. Maybe there's some better information. Maybe there's a different way of organizing it. And so I'll delay and I'll delay and I'll delay. I cannot decide on a direction for my sermon until finally it's like Friday afternoon and I have to write something. What's that about? It's about fear. It's about fear of not succeeding. It's about fear of being rejected. It's about fear of of not doing your best. And you have your own version of that. And then finally, there's uh, the third indicator, and that's denial. Denial. That's another way that we avoid fear. We just deny it. We deny that, that it's there. We deny how scared we are. We deny how big of a deal it really is. You know, researchers did a study of people who had symptoms that they were afraid had been caused by cancer. Like cancer-like symptoms. And they found that not only were these people often not going to the doctor, they found that these people were less likely to go to a doctor than people that had no symptoms at all. People with symptoms they believe might 
indicate cancer were less likely to go to the doctor than healthy people, people with no symptoms. Now, the irony is, of course, that the best chance to effectively treat cancer is early detection. But why would people not go? They'd rather live in denial than face their fears. Friends, here's why acknowledgement is so, so important. God uses uses acknowledgement of our fears to put us on the right path. God uses the acknowledgement of our fears to remind us that this world is a broken place, that it's dangerous, and that we can't handle it. You see, the Bible is very honest about the state of our world about the condition that we as human beings are in. The Bible does not say, there's nothing to be afraid of in this world because you can handle it. It's not the message of the scriptures at all. It actually, it's way worse than this. The Bible actually says, there's lots to be afraid of and it's all bigger than you. You can't handle it, not on your own. So step one is just acknowledgement. Acknowledgement of your fears. Acknowledgement of the things that paralyze you and stop you and halt you and, and cause worry and anxiety in your life. Because they set up step number two. The chance to remember. Listen to these verses. Hezekiah says, Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks down the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Now, do you notice what Hezekiah is doing here? He's looking back. He's talking in past tense about God. He's remembering what God has done in the past. He's remembering how good and faithful his God has been. You see, there's this... This, this psalm is actually the inspiration for a really beautiful hymn that was written. And some of you may have heard it before. It's called Be Still My Soul. The author of Be Still My Soul uh, took his inspiration from this psalm. And there's a verse in Be Still My Soul. It says, Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. See, the message is this. The message is you can have a stilled soul, a calm soul, a soul that's at peace amidst tragedy and calamity and terror and fear. Why? Because if you look back at who God has been in the midst of those things in the past, you can count on the fact that he's going to be the same God today. This, friends, is why it is so important for you to read your Bible It's not about religious points or feeling good about checking it off the list or just getting through a chapter every day so that you can, you know, take a picture and put it on Instagram, hashtag blessed. None of that. It's about remembering who our God is, getting to know who our God has been so that you can be confident in who he will be in your life today and tomorrow when the enemy comes and terror strikes and life looks hopeless and bleak. You see, you have to remember who our God is. The other thing to remember is is this line that's repeated twice in this psalm. It's important for a reason. If you go to the next slide... It reads, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, it's interesting that in this psalm about fear and about overcoming fear, that that Hezekiah would mention Jacob. 
Why? Jacob was one of the most fear-filled people in the entire Old Testament. He's fearful that he won't get the family inheritance. So what's he do? He swindles it from his brother. And then he spends the whole like next section of his life fearful that his brother's going to come and exact revenge on him. Remember? They, go, they come to meet. His brother brings an army. And Jacob sends like his entire clan across the river to meet him. But he doesn't go. Why? He's scared. He's scared of his brother. And then he gets through that mess and he's fearful about you know, selecting a wife and that whole thing goes south. He's even a pretty lousy parent and his, you know, some of his sons kill another one of his sons or pretend to and it's a whole big thing. This is a guy whose life was plagued by fear and yet, what is the psalmist saying here? The psalmist is saying this, remember that we serve a God who engages with people who are fearful, even with those people. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes in Christian circles, the message around fear is this. You shouldn't fear because God is big. And if you really believed in God enough, if you had enough faith, then you wouldn't be afraid. And so what do Christians do? They tuck their fears away. It's not acceptable to share about fear In the church, why? Well, don't you have faith? No, no, friends. You see, our God values people like Jacob who put their fears on the table so that he can deal with them. If you're a person who deals with fear, remember, God loves you. He's with you. He longs to enter into your struggles with you. And that leads to step three, surrender. It's probably the crowning verse of this psalm. It's the most popular one. It's verse 10. He says, that's God, be still and know that I am God. And the Hebrew word for be still here is actually the same word that's used for a soldier who would take their weapon, their sword, and just release it. Just drop it. See, this this psalm is certainly about retreating to some quiet spaces where God can speak to you. But it's not just about that. It's about finding um, space where you can remember to surrender, where you can drop your weapons, where you can say, I'm not going to fight the fear on my own. I'm not going to use my own strength, my own weapons to fight whatever battles are ahead. I'm going to surrender to using the strength of the Lord. I'm going to invite him into the battles that are before me. This is a warning for all who want to follow God in this world filled with fear, do not try to take it, take it on by yourself. We were never meant to face fear alone. And that's why this verse is not a suggestion. It's actually written as an imperative. It is the strongest possible language the Bible can use. In other words, it says, it doesn't say like, be still and know that I'm God if you kind of want to, or if you're really in need of it. It's God saying, do it this way. Do it this way. It's command. Surrender to inviting me into your place of fear. And then, and then, the fourth and final step for today. Take a step. You see, God says, or Hezekiah reminds us to, to acknowledge our fears, to remember who God is, to surrender to his strength in the midst of our fears. But then, but then, The onus kind of flips back and the message is, and now take a step towards your fears. Take a step of confidence on your own with God, but 
You take the step. You see, sometimes what we do as Christians is we do all these steps and then at the very end we kind of go, all right, Lord, I've done it. Like, wipe the army out. Take care of it. Fix everything for me. Like, it's just going to happen by magic. But that is not how God works. You see, what God does is he asks us to take a step and he says, once you'll take a step, then I'll join you. You can have so much confidence that I'll be with, with you. But you have to take the step to experience this. One author I read this week says it this way. God provides power as you go. God says, take one step into the Jordan. And once they do, God will step in and cause the waters to part. You must do what you can and then God will do what you can't. God says to Moses, Moses, you must go before Pharaoh. He says to David, you must go before Goliath. He says to Peter, you must get out of the boat. And then when you've taken one step, I'll supply the power. I'll do the miracles. Moses, I'll change Pharaoh's heart. David, I'll guide the rock from the sling. Peter, I'll hold, hold your feet up on the water. I'll do what you cannot, but you have got to do what you can. You must take the first step. Now, I don't know if, if, if you've realized this yet or not, but this is actually not good news. This is hard news because every single person in this room wishes it was a different way. We all wish that God's power would go first and then we could take the step. And that's how we pray all the time. Well, notice it's not how Hezekiah prays. Wouldn't it be nice if the power would come first? Then I'll take the step. Then I'll go in with two feet, Lord. God, if you could just change Pharaoh's heart first, then I'll go confront him. God, I'd like for Goliath to suffer some major brain trauma. Then I'll show up down in the valley with my sling. You see, God doesn't work that way, friends. God asks us to take a step because that's when we grow in faith. We learn to trust him by trusting him. And then finding out that he is in fact trustworthy. God isn't generally in the business of changing circumstances to reduce our fears. He is generally in the business of building souls that have the confidence to face them. That's what he's about. He's about your soul growing to trust him more and more and more. So that you can face greater and greater and bigger fears down the road with more confidence. And friends, what's amazing about it is that research is now showing exactly what the Bible has said all along. Research, psychological research now shows that if you face your fears, if you take action, if you move towards them and not away from them, even if things don't turn out well, even if things go poorly, even if they don't turn out the way you like or hoped or thought or planned, you will experience a surge of delight in your soul. You will know you did a tough thing. You will know you took on a challenge. And from that, just that little bit of strength and confidence, it will be built into the fabric of who you are and you will walk forward with it. This week at Royal Family Kids Camp, um, there, something's going to happen. And it's one of my favorite parts of the week. And I've watched it happen every single year I've gone to camp. It doesn't happen in, in the large group sessions or during the songs or during the teaching about Jesus. It happens during the rec time. It happens at the climbing wall and the zip line and these two black tube water slides they call the black hole. And it happens in the recreation area at the arts and crafts tables. There'll be kids 
who will go to these places and they'll stand up on the platform of the zip line or they'll climb a few feet up off the ground on the rock wall or they'll they'll stand at the mouth of the black hole and look down the long, dark, um, watery abyss or they'll sit at a table with an art project before them and they'll be scared and they'll be intimidated and they will doubt themselves. And then a counselor, a loving, Holy Spirit-filled Christian counselor won't pressure, but they'll just encourage, I think you can do it. And they'll take a step and they'll go a few feet higher on the wall or they'll climb into the big dark tube or they'll sit down and make an attempt at painting the, you know, the wood fire engine and something will happen in their souls. And it's not just a physical thing, friends. It's not just a material thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a thing that they will take with them. It's a moment when they will realize, I can do more than I thought. I do not have to be defined by my fears. My fears don't have to rule me or own me. And hopefully they will walk away from camp a little bigger, a little stronger, a little more formed into the person that I believe God longs for them to be. And they will take that renewed sense of strength and courage and hope and they will take it into their dark, messy, scary lives. It's a beautiful spiritual moment where some souls and some hearts get strengthened. You see, if you avoid facing your fear, even if things externally work out, even if they kind of all turn out all right, deep down, you walk away knowing that you wimped out, knowing that you didn't do the hard thing, and a little bit of you just dies, just shrinks away. And when it happens time and time and time again, a person's self-worth and confidence, they just get chipped away at slowly and surely. And people begin to forget that they are created in the image of a mighty, powerful, courageous God. There's this moment a while back when I was having one of those days with my sermon. It wasn't going well. It was a Saturday and... uh, I was struggling a little bit with it, feeling insecure, and I finally just said, you know, I need to get out of here, I need to go for a run, I just need to get, like, unplugged for a little bit, and so one of the things I like to do to clear my head is go running. So I grabbed my, my phone, or my, you know, my phone, for my iPod, and, and uh, I dialed up a podcast. I like to listen to other preachers um, when I'm running, because sometimes it reminds me, like, well, they're not that good, so, you know, no, no, that's not what I think. So I had this Andy Stanley podcast I wanted to listen to. I've been looking forward to it, so I start to run, and I'm listening to Andy, and he's, like, firing me up, and I'm thinking, yeah. And then all of a sudden, about a quarter of the way through, like, the, the download didn't work right, and it kind of got all scrambly, and it just wouldn't play, and I'm trying to get to play, and I was just getting frustrated, and so finally I just clicked it off and I clicked it over to music and I didn't, you know, I was running and I didn't have time to like, I didn't want to stop so I just clicked it over and my wife had downloaded this song onto our iTunes account and it kicked to this song and I'm running and all of a sudden I start to hear it playing. Be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. And I'm listening like, what is this? This is not running music at all. <laughs> but I was intrigued and so I just kept listening And as it turns out, the song was on repeat, so it just kept going over and over and over again. And there's this this haunting, soul-soothing, courage-building song. And about halfway through my run, I started thinking, Lord, you had other plans for this run today. 
This is exactly what you wanted for me. You wanted me not to come and listen to a motivational talk or a sermon. You wanted me to listen to this song that reminds me that you are with me and that you are strong and that I can face anything with you. And then all of a sudden, just as I was having these thoughts, these serene, peaceful thoughts, I went running past this house. This is a totally a true story, by the way. This is not exaggerated at all. I'm running past this house, and the guy was out front washing his car, and he had his dog out, not on a leash. So as I run by, this dog bolts out and starts to chase me. Doberman Pinscher. Maybe a Chihuahua. It was just... Seriously, I literally, it was seriously, I don't know what it was, but it's like the smallest dog you can imagine. And I, I have this, I have a little bit of a fear of dogs. I'm not like deathly afraid of dogs, but I don't like it when strange dogs just come up to me. And so you have to picture it. I have the headphones in, the earbuds, right? So in my mind is just, you know, be still my soul. And at the same time, this dog is chasing me full speed. And this like giant, lanky pastor, I'm running full speed as this dog chases me. And again, in the headphones, be still my soul. I was like, and so I ran for about 200. This dog was relentless, just would not give up. And it's yipping at my heels. And and I finally, after about 200 yards, it kind of backs off. Maybe it's 100 and goes back to its owner. And I'm like, what in the heck just happened? And it's like, then the Holy Spirit kind of said, and that's life, Dave. (laughs) Right? You see, nowhere in this entire psalm does Hezekiah ever say, God, would you change the circumstances? God, would you wipe out this army? God, would you get this cotton-picking dog off my heels? He never asked God to change the circumstances. He just asked God to change his heart. He just says, God, prepare me for whatever challenge is ahead. You see, every single one of us in this room, when we walk out of here today, there's a dog waiting for us out there. For some of us, it's a little dog, and for some of us, it's a big dog. And the prayer, the hope, the goal of this psalm, the goal of our Lord is not to just get rid of that dog, but to prepare your heart to face it, to remind you that you don't face it alone and to remind you that even in the facing of it, God is going to use that to build you and grow you and change you and shape you in ways that you can't even imagine. And so before we go today, we come to the table to get some courage, to remind ourselves where our strength to face the dogs and the armies of this world comes from. And it comes from our God. It comes from Him. It comes from His body broken and His blood shed on the cross. And so we come to the table today acknowledging, God, I have fears, remembering, God, who you are, saying, Lord, I surrender into partnership with you because you are the God who is great, who is mighty, who is strong. You are the God who has even defeated death. So let me ask you today, what are you afraid of? What fears are floating around in your mind? What fears are simmering just below the surface that are driving you, even when you don't think about them or see them? God invites you today to bring those forward, to lay them on the table, to lay them at the foot of the cross, not so that he can annihilate them, but so he can strengthen you for them. So take a few minutes, do whatever business you need to do with God, and then come to the table and remember the death and the resurrection and the victory and the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. Amen.